Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Hello and welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. If you haven't already, follow me on Facebook. You just search the Joey Clark Radio Hour. It's that simple. And if you don't do it, I'll know. Nothing will happen, but I'll know. And I'll be very greatly hurt. But tonight, continuing, we can't always have silly shows, which I do have these silly stream of consciousness shows. We're going to have fun tonight because I find thoughtful discussion fun and I like learning. My guest this evening, and I really appreciate him being here, is Dr. David Sorensen from the Air War College here in Montgomery. Dr. Sorensen, how are you this evening? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Joey. I'm, I'm happy that you're here because, um, well, the news is heating up, as we just saw with... Uh, Donald Trump expediting the embassy to be located in Jerusalem. It's created this flashpoint where obviously there are people in the United States like Trump kept his promise, but it's much bigger than American politics, and I think it's much bigger than just American uh, interest in terms of foreign policy. I was reading articles that I was telling you off air, and everybody in the Middle East and the globe has some comment or opinion on this situation. And it brings us to how central the Middle East can be in world affairs and geopolitics. And I, I kind of want to do, if we can, in the short amount of time we have, kind of a 101. If I'm from a place of complete ignorance. I'll play the role. What makes the Middle East such a hot spot, such a, uh, a hinge of the world in terms of international affairs? I go back to the name Middle East. It's in the middle. Hmm. It's between Europe and Asia. Uh, and it plays a, a global role in a way that takes it far beyond oil, which is usually the first thing we think of. It's really not just about oil and gas. Um, it's, uh, it's a huge area, about 300 to 400 million Arabs alone. Uh, it's the largest concentration of, of Muslims, although they're not the largest countries. It's the largest concentration. Uh, it's the home of Israel, which, uh, since its founding in 1948, uh, has has presented a controversy, uh, a sort of ongoing conflict that's led from war to war and now uh, violent uprisings, uh, uh, not only in Israel, but involving Israel and uh, Syria, uh, Israel and Iran. Uh, it is the home of Iran, which uh, is the largest Shia country in the world and the only country ruled by the Shia. They have a global reach. Uh, and I add Turkey to that mix as well. Turkey is uh, the only majority Muslim country that is a member of NATO. Uh, 83, uh, 84 million uh, people who speak Turkish, but uh, regard themselves as a kind of a bridge between Europe and the Middle East. So it's, it's an important place. It's an important place economically. So in the more rapid economic growth in the world is happening now in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, they become global airline hubs, global transit hubs. A lot of cargo moves through the Middle East, uh, through the choke points, uh, 
the uh, Straits of Gibraltar, the uh, Suez Canal, uh, the Straits of Hormuz, tremendous amount of seaborne traffic uh, that connects Europe, Asia, North America, moves to the Middle East. So it's important for lots and lots of reasons that take us beyond oil. Well, yes, and I generally, I mean, I have this disposition of why can't everybody just get along, and I, I think it is true when goods and culture cross borders, armies don't, but it, the Middle East, especially since uh, the turn of this century, say go back to 2003, after the United States is in Afghanistan uh, for a little while, uh, the mission accomplished famous statement by Bush on the aircraft carrier. We're now 15 years removed from 03. Things have only become more complicated in the region. And though I am all in the camp of don't do what we did taking out Saddam again, and people keep going back to that with good reason, it's kind of taking the cork out of the bottle. The the situation keeps changing, whether we're talking about Syria, now things, the way Turkey is relating uh, to Syria, now it seems the situation with Israel and Palestine is heating up again, and Iran continues to now dominate large swaths of Iraq and into Syria. If you kind of had to step back and say, who are the major players in the driver's seat here, um, really driving the interest and the conflict in the region, who would you say? I would put Saudi Arabia high on the list. Uh, I wouldn't have said that even five years ago, but uh, the new crown prince, who's 33, 34 years old, his name is uh, Mohammed bin Salman, um, he has become one of the major players in a country that has a lot of wealth, also problems. Um, but he is is working together with his mentor, uh, uh, Prince Mohammed uh, bin Zayed, uh, who's the crown prince of, of, uh, of the United Arab Emirates. And uh, together, they have been reshaping uh, not only those countries, but a lot of the uh, region. Um, they have both uh, made... Overtures towards Israel, something that would have been unthinkable even two or three years ago, largely because of the con- combined concern about Iran. So we're seeing that change. Um, in, and so Saudi Arabia, uh, given its wealth, uh, given a new direction, it's, 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 it's reforming rapidly. Women will be able to drive next month. Historical change. Uh, women have been able to vote. Uh, women's rights are really are expanding, although they are still limited. Uh, and you're seeing that throughout uh, much of the uh, conservative Gulf. Uh, so Saudi Arabia is a major player. Uh, Israel, under uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, will soon surpass uh, David Ben-Gurion as the longest-serving prime minister in Israel, uh, continues to be a player. Um, he's, uh, he's a shrewd leader. Uh, agree with him or not, uh, he understands power. He understands influence. He understands how to shape American politics because he lived in the United States for a very long period of time, went to school at MIT, and... Uh, has certainly uh, created a partnership with, uh, with with the Trump administration. And so I think his role has only increased after the election of, uh, of, of President Trump. Um, Iran, a country that you cannot ignore, uh, a country that in many ways is, is poorly understood by Americans, mm-hmm. 
Um, it's a country that we characterize as ruled by, by Shia clerics. It's much more complicated. Uh, the president and the foreign minister are what I call reformists. A large majority of Iranians are rejecting the harshness of the Shia clerics. They want modernity. Uh, they voted uh, by a margin of 57% to 36% for uh, President Hassan Rouhani uh, in 2017. He's popular. The problem for him is that he put a lot of his chips on the uh, nuclear agreement uh, when the Trump administration withdrew from that agreement. That has really put him in jeopardy. And the problem for the United States and the rest of the region is that that really empowers the more radical clerics who have seen their power slip away, uh, thanks to Rouhani. But if the Iranians don't get the benefits of the end of sanctions that the nuclear agreement uh, offered up, uh, then they may turn away from modernity and back towards the, the clerics. So Iran is a major power. Um, I think Turkey is also a major power. Turkey, um, under the now president, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, has now ranked by Freedom House as not free. Uh, it's gone from uh, being a semi-democracy to now it's characterized as an autocracy. Um, it is moving increasingly towards uh, a more conservative uh, form of public Islam. Uh, it's increasingly uh, involved in Syria and Iraq. Uh, the president is increasingly focusing, Tur focusing Turkish pressure on fighting the various different Kurdish groups. And the problem with that is that some of those Kurdish groups have been aligned with the United States in fighting the so-called Islamic State. So Turkey is another major player. Well, and it almost seems that when I, I get lazy in my looking at the Middle East, you think of only Saudi and Iran. And Turkey is now this very much a, a wild card. Um, I'm first, though, with those three players, Saudi and the Gulf Arabs, Iran, and then Turkey, let's start with Saudi and, and the crown prince. It, what type of reforms, it's, it almost makes me think, I, I need jerk react going, I don't like autocrats, I don't like monarchs, these sort of things. But there is throughout history examples of when autocrats or monarchs put forth liberal reforms, and this really is what he's doing with human rights and economic liberalization. Right. It's interesting that Saudi Arabian citizens tend to be some of the more conservative in the Arab world. Uh, and the voice of reform has actually come from the Al Saud family. Autocratic as they are, uh, King Abdulaziz, who was the founder of Saudi Arabia, uh, actually introduced radio in the 1930s. There were riots because Saudis argued God does not authorize radio. <laughs> and so the king had to read the Quran on the radio in order to get people to accept it. Same thing in television. God does not allow the transmission of, of human images. There were riots. The king had to read the Quran on television. It was the same thing with women's education in the in the 70s. There were riots. Saudi Arabia joined the World Trade Organization. There were riots because the argument was, well, it'll require us to import porn and, uh, and pork. Uh, not true, but again, there were riots. And so while the monarchy tends to be conservative, it has also been a form for, uh, force for reform against the very conservative citizenry. And what what is happening with uh, with King Salman, who's in his 80s, I've met him, very, very bright individual, knows the United States, but aging, possibly suffering from dementia, and it is likely that in the next year, two or three, um, 
Prince uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman will become King uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and his plans for reform go far beyond anything that his uh, father and grandfather have done. Um, he understands that uh, Saudi Arabia is not uh, attractive to investors because of its conservatism. Uh, and so he started to empower women, realizing that if you're going to bring in foreign investment, you're going to have to bring in foreign women who are going to have to be accepted. Um, he also understands that uh, as the country modernizes, it's going to have to open up its media. It's going to have to allow things like movies. Uh, apparently, the movie Black Panther mm. is the first movie ever shown in Saudi Arabia, at least legally. Um, it's allowing music shows. They're still segregated, but you couldn't have a concert or a movie in Saudi Arabia from 1932 until now. Um, he's also investing tremendously in an alternative economy. He has a plan to build a city that is going to be something like 57 square miles uh, in the northern part of the country, overlapping with, uh, with Jordan. Um, it's going to be entirely powered by alternative uh, energy, mm. by, by wind and solar, which is good for Saudi Arabia. There's lots of sun there. Um, but it's also going to involve robotics. It's going to involve uh, kind of a, uh, an Internet-driven uh, city in many ways. Everything will be run off the Internet. Uh, whether it works out or not, uh, nobody knows. We're talking about a trillion or two in investment. Um, where that money's going to come from is not entirely clear. But um, it does, I think, indicate that Saudi Arabia, uh, under the next generation of, uh, of leaders, because every king has been a son of Abdulaziz, uh, I think the next generation really understands that modernity is the wave of the future, and you really have to push back against this very conservative form of Islam that the clerics... And many of the Saudi citizens have uh, have preferred. It also means firing a lot of clerics, and a lot mm. of clerics have been fired. Uh, something that was very difficult to do in previous uh, monarchies. Well, and I, at first, I, I saw this change from a weird view. Uh, I'm recently, in the last year or two, got really into what they call in the business sports entertainment, professional wrestling, the WWE. They just signed a 10-year contract mm -hmm. with Saudi Arabia and did this thing called the Greatest Royal Rumble. It's the weirdest wrestling promotion I've ever seen because you had royalty right around the ring with their uh, ornate, very plush chairs, and they weren't really into what was happening, I don't think. Some of the kids around them yeah. were, but you could tell they're just kind of there. But what gave me hope, in a way, is the 60,000 people in the regular seats were chanting all the chants you hear Americans do. They knew who to boo. They knew who to cheer. Like, they're, they're in on it. Yep. it. It wasn't that, other than the weird stuff going on around the ring, it was almost like you're at an American show. Yep. And I'm like, that is, and the funny thing is there was a controversy. Is the women weren't allowed. Uh, they didn't have the female wrestlers perform that night, but they did show an ad that WWE is now doing dual branding, like SmackDown and Raw come together for all pay-per-views. And in that commercial, you have two female wrestlers in it wearing normal wrestling garb for women these days but very scantily clad and apparently there's a huge uproar because this got broadcast for a few seconds so i see what you mean by the they're trying to move things forward but if you go a little too far you're going to cause a lot of outrage right um and it's interesting that the same thing is happening in iran as you mentioned earlier that the youth there want modernity um but 
I, as you said, I think people don't understand how Iran really works in this country. And I heard uh, the other day listening to a speech that Iran and the regime really does control the population. I mean, I heard that, and this might be completely wrong, the figure is like a million people in the military. I mean, how does the regime exercise control, and, and what is that relationship like between, say, the regime and the populace? There's a lot of tension between the regime and especially the urban populace in, in the bigger cities, particularly in Tehran, in Isfahan, in, in Tabriz, in, uh, in Qum. Uh, the population really does uh, uh, crave modernity. Uh, things like, for example, uh, you can find Christmas trees being sold in a country that's 90% Muslim. Uh, by Muslim Iranians, they want to celebrate Christmas. You can see women by themselves shooting pool. Um, you can see massive crowds at rock concerts. They absolutely love rock and roll. They love American rock and roll. I have a picture of a funeral. Uh, a lot of people gathered around, touching the coffin and taking pictures. And I say, this looks like it could be a, a, a famous cleric. No, this was Iran's greatest rock singer who died appropriately, as all rock singers should, from a drug overdose or choked on his own vomit or something. However, rock stars die. Yes. Um, very, very popular. Iranians love American muscle cars. And there's a whole group of people who collect Camaros and Chargers and Mustangs uh, and restore them, and they go cruising uh, in them. And, and they were hoping that the nuclear agreement would produce more muscle cars. It would relax the, the, the sanctions. Um, they love blue jeans. Uh, Iranian women barely cover their hair now, and it used to be they were required to wear these deep black, uh, all-encompassing shaldurs. Now they barely cover their hair at all. Uh, they wear jewelry. They shop on the on their own. Um, and again, they're very fond of Western products. Uh, they also like to drink in a heavily Muslim country. In fact, the alcohol rate has gotten so bad that now there are Alcoholics Anonymous chapters opening up in Iranian cities. So the good and bad come along with an interest in Western uh, tradition. But it, it's, it's easy to think of the Iranians as kind of crazy people chatting about the Ayatollah, and that really misunderstands uh, a vast majority of the country. Very few people are going to mosques. Very few people are observing Ramadan. Uh, people are now complaining about the call to prayer because it wakes them up. Um, they don't perform the Hajj much anymore. Uh, they'd much rather have modernity and have religion become privatized. The problem is that there's a lot of power that lodges in the clerics. Mm. And the clerics have several internal mechanisms, including a group known as the Basij, uh, who are linked to the so-called uh, Islamic Republican Guard Corps, uh, who, who patrol the streets and who try to rein in uh, the population. The problem is that they have become deeply unpopular. They have been attacked. Um, and so, in a sense, the ability of the clerics to clamp down on a stolen election protest, as happened in 2009 when former and unlamented President Ahmadinejad won a stolen election, uh, the besieged crackdown uh, and, and essentially preserved the election, that couldn't happen today. And I think the clerics understand it. They looked at the Arab Spring and thought, if we don't give the population a certain escape valve, let them vote for someone other than the candidates we select, we're going to face an Arab Spring where they could take us out just like they took out four Arab autocrats. 
And so I think that brought about a real kind of reckoning with, uh, with modernity in Iran. And again, the hope of the nuclear agreement was not just to control Iran's nuclear program. It was to reward the modernizers who wanted to take away power from the clerics. Yes, and I, I was always interested with the Trump regime, or Trump administration, excuse me, pardon me, that's my radicalism sneaking out. The Trump administration uh, pulling out of this deal, I, I was always asking the question, how does this affect Iranian domestic politics? We hear enough about American politics and maybe some relations to what the Saudis think and what Israel thinks and pulling out. But how do you think this affected domestic politics in Iran? Well, I think it very much hurt the moderates. Uh, I, I don't like the term moderates. I like to call them reformers. But the people who wanted to reduce the power of the, of the clerics, uh, again, in response to the vast majority of Iranians, particularly urban Iranians, who, uh, who really want an end to this religious power. Um, and, and so I think, in many ways, it, it, it worsens the position in the United States. Now, I, why did the president do it to keep a campaign promise? Because he didn't necessarily understand the complexity of, of Iranian politics, because President Obama did it. There are lots of potential reasons. Um, I think there was a great deal of lobbying by, by Israel, legal. There was a tremendous amount of lobbying by Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia lobbies in Washington very, very effectively. I've seen it. I was recruited into it once, sort of unwittingly perhaps, but uh, they have 143 registered agents working for Saudi Arabia just in Washington. Uh, They reach out to Congress. They have strong ties to some of the president's uh, inner circle. Uh, The president himself has gone to Saudi Arabia. Uh, He has met with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, We know the long nights spent between Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and Mohammed bin Salman. I'm sure they weren't drinking anything, (laughs) but uh, they they know each other. The president's uh, daughter has been to Saudi Arabia. Um, And uh, so there are personal connections, there are political connections that I think in many ways persuaded the president that it was important to break the nuclear agreement. Now, to be fair, the nuclear agreement was not perfect. Uh, I've, I've argued that it is it served American interests, but it did need to be improved. I think the Obama administration left it incomplete. Um, it didn't account for a lot of the behavior that Iranians uh, are doing that I think is is as a negative force. The biggest concern about what Iran is doing, in my mind, is it is becoming deeply involved in Syria. Uh, the Assad regime, which has religious ties to Iran, is unfortunately, in my view, winning the Syrian civil war at horrible human cost. Uh, and the Iranians have moved in. Uh, the Israelis, as we know, struck those sites. The Iranians have struck back. Um, I think both sides backed down after the Israelis launched a massive attack last week Mm. on Iranian targets in uh, Syria. But I understand Israel's concern about the uh, proximity of Iranian forces right next door to Israel. I've been on both sides of that border, and uh, it's not an easy border to defend. And uh, Again, I understand why the Israelis are concerned, but the Iranians appear to be willing to take the risk. And to me, that... uh, that's another sign of the continuing power of the clerics uh, that that uh, uh, I think the Iranian agreement would have weakened. But 
we do need to be wary of Iran. I'm certainly not suggesting that it's all about muscle cars and rock and roll. They they do have aspirations in, in Yemen. They've been supporting the uh, uh, a Shia group known as the Al-Houthi, virtually in Saudi Arabia's backyard. It's cost them very little to keep the uh, rebellion in Saudi Arabia's backyard going. It's costing Saudi Arabia a lot. Uh, it's not going all that well. Uh, their activities in the Gulf are, are concerning. Their support for Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon, who, which just actually increased its power as a result of the elections last week in Lebanon. So there are things that Iran is doing under the control of the clerics that are, I think, deeply troubling. And uh, uh, we need to be very much uh, aware of these things. Well, and the way I would think of it, and we have to hit a quick break here, uh, is if you do have a population that is starting to be less compliant with your rule, a good way, or maybe a potentially effective way, let's leave the good out of it, an effective way of getting people to come to your cause is to create a scapegoat, mm-hmm. is to look for others, and uh, I mean, and war is the height of that, to kind of bring people together under a national sentiment, if not a religious uh, sentiment. Um, and when we come back after this break, I really want to get to the what I called the wild card earlier with Turkey. And uh, we, of course, don't want to forget Israel and Egypt and, well, the, the cork that came out of the bottle, Iraq, and mm-hmm. I think Iran plays into that as well. But uh, we're going to hit this quick break here. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. My guest this evening, Dr. David Swordson from the Air War College. Uh, here in Montgomery at Maxwell, and we'll be right back after this quick break. We talk about it every day. Seems your love don't want to come my way. I've been wrong so long and played little games. Just can't believe I could ever change But I will for you and me You see Just let our love grow naturally My words go round and round and upside down Joey Clark Welcome back. No real reason to play It's You Girl by the Brothers Johnson from the Blam album, other than I just like the song. It has nothing to do with our topic. Really just love this song, really do. Again, my guest this evening is Dr. David Swordson from the Air War College over at Maxwell. Where we left off, you know, we had kind of visited some of the big players like Saudi Arabia, Iran, the newest one on the block, who is almost a wild card, is Turkey. Now, they've long been a U.S.-NATO ally, I think a nice buffer against Russia. Um, but things have changed. And I'm saying this out of a place, truly, of not having a deep background. But the word, some reason that's floating around in my mind, is neo-Ottoman. I mean, what is happening with Turkey? Turkey's going through what... I would call a, a, a long-standing earthquake um, because it's interesting that for for many centuries Turkey was the heart of the Islamic Ottoman Empire, and whether or not it was a caliphate or not, reasonable people can disagree. But as Turkey lost 
war after war and the end of the 19th century and especially was on the losing side in World War I, uh, a guy named Mustafa Kemal arose, uh, saved the country from European occupation, uh, and then became president on, on the following narrative. We were once a great country. We were weak because of Islam. And therefore, Islam will be taken out of the government and be strictly put into the, into the private places. So you can attend mosque services, but there will be no public Islam. Um, he changed the language, uh, which was written in Arabic, to a Latinized. He banned the religious schools. He, sent the, he closed down the religious orders. Um, he uh, did everything he could, including banning Islamic dress. So wearing a headscarf in Turkey was a crime. Uh, he banned the fez, of all things. And so in many ways, Turkey became a highly secular, Western-oriented, European-leading uh, country uh, from 1923 until 2002. Now, the keeper of that flame, which became known as the Ataturk flame, as Kemal, Mustafa Kemal was awarded the term um, uh, Kemal Ataturk, father of Turkey, uh, the keeper of that flame was the Turkish military. And every once in a while, when the Turkish military feared that Islam was becoming a little bit too close, they would launch a coup. And they were actually two real coups that actually ousted the government. And there were several moderate, mild coups where they would make a phone call and say, you have 24 hours, you need to go. You're getting too close to political Islam. That all changed in 2002 with the election of the uh, so-called uh, Justice and Development Party, uh, led by uh, the former mayor of, of Istanbul, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Um, Erdogan was an Islamist. Uh, he was also a tough guy. He was a football player. He came from a rough neighborhood. He had a hard scrabble background. And he very much resented the uh, Istanbul elite and uh, feared the military. Um, and so as he consolidated power, mostly through economic reforms, um, he gradually began to close down the media. He gradually began to push Islam more into the center of, of the uh, of Turkish identity. Uh, and so your term neo-Ottomanism is exactly correct because Turkey is not just becoming more Islamic as a country, but it's also in in installing in uh, its influence in the countries around it, very much like the Ottoman Empire. So there are Turkish troops in Syria, there are Turkish troops in uh, in uh, Iraq. Turkey is once again picking a squabble with Greece over some small islands, uh, something that had been uh, uh, settled. Uh, Turkey is increasingly angry uh, with the... Um, with the secularists like the Egyptian uh, regime that, that overthrew an, a democratic, democratically elected uh, Islamist regime in, in Egypt. And so what, what uh, Erdogan is doing is in many ways reversing many decades of secular Turkish politics and increasingly pushing Turkey into two directions. It's becoming more autocratic and it's becoming more Islamist. Uh, and the question now is, this is a country that has been a NATO member since 1952. The United States has forces in Turkey. The United States has undeclared weapons. Let's just keep it at that. <laughs> uh, and uh, the question is, should the United States continue to, uh, to be in Turkey? Will Turks allow uh, American forces to remain because American-Turkish relations are increasingly getting strained. So a long answer to a good question. After many, many decades of a very secular, um, 
religion must be private identity. Turkey has really switched courses. The wild card, though, is that the Turkish public, uh, they're Muslims, to be sure. But in the big cities, they still drink alcohol. Uh, they still like rock and roll. They still like uh, material things. Uh, and the idea of political Islam is not appealing to them. Uh, the problem is that what uh, Erdogan has offered has been prosperity, even though it's come at huge debt. Um, and in many ways, he's buying their loyalty, but he's also constricting their freedom. Uh, there are virtually no more free presses in Turkey. The, the once vibrant newspaper uh, and media outlet uh, system has been virtually shut down. Uh, political participation has been curtailed. Uh, power has been taken away from the uh, Kurdish party. Uh, and Erdogan, again, has, uh, has uh, uh, won a major referendum, increasing his power mm. as, as president. Uh, and he's marginalized the military, the judiciary, the police forces by either firing or jailing hundreds of thousands of people. So a lot of Turkey's senior military that once guarded the country against political Islam are now in prison or they've been fired. Uh, we saw a brief attempt at a coup in July 2016 that was led by officers who feared that they would be next to be fired because being fired means no pension, no job, nothing for your family. Um, so it, it Political, the political situation in Turkey is becoming increasingly tense. Um, again, I was there in, uh, in March. Um, it was tense um, for all kinds of reasons. And uh, I fear that as Turkey's power grows, um, American interests in the region are going to be increasingly challenged. And that brings us to where all these powers are starting to meet, where they're butting up uh, against each other, Syria and the Syrian civil war, uh, certainly. And then, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, this recent move, moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, uh, Erdogan himself came out with uh, very provocative statements, I believe, saying Israel's committed mm -hmm. genocide. Armenia. Yeah. Uh, right. You're right. So... It, <laughs> How I, I don't even know how to ask the question in the sense that the Syrian civil war has gone on for so long, such devastation, yet Assad is still in the saddle, the clean-shaven line of the Levant, and Iran is in the country, Israel is striking the country where they see fit, Turkey, I'd imagine, is still funding and involved in the war, yeah. and, and it doesn't seem like there's a clear end to any of this. Yeah, the Syrian civil war has gone on since 2011. Um, we have no idea how many people have died because it's too dangerous to go in and count. Uh, the figures are well over half a million dead. Half the country's population has been displaced. They're either refugees in the Middle East or Europe or they're internally displaced. Um, the economy has contracted by 59%. Uh, that's the steepest drop in an economy uh, in modern history. Uh, there are, uh, the unemployment rate is 59%. 85% of Syrians live in poverty. And those two numbers are the worst anywhere in the world. It tells you something about the devastation. Uh, the devastation is absolutely 
widespread to the point where you look at an overnight view of Aleppo, Syria's largest city in 2012, and you look at one in 2015, and the city has shrunk in terms of lights by half. Mm. And that's the devastation. Uh, it is, to me, it's a country that won't ever recover. There'll be a Syria, there'll be people living there, but what I knew and remember and, and enjoyed as a country uh, is gone. And it's a tragedy because um, in many ways Syria was, was a country where people were included for all of its sins, and it has plenty of them. The Assad regime comes from a small offshoot of Shia Islam uh, known as the Alawi, but they did include Christians. They did include the Sunni. They did include the Druze. Um, they even rebuilt an old Jewish synagogue in uh, Damascus. So it was a it was a regime that did include uh, the majority and and minority. Um, they, they were members of the Ba'ath Party, and so the emphasis was not religion. It was really more about kind of nationalism, and that all fell apart when the Syrian civil war started in early uh, 2011. And, and that's dead. Now it's a country badly polarized by religious differences, by language differences, because Syria, like other Arab countries, has a population of Kurds. Uh, the Kurds have dramatically increased the amount of territory that they uh, they controlled before the civil war. Uh, but the Assad regime has essentially rolled back most of the opposition. Um, the good news is that the so-called Islamic State has been almost destroyed um, and we can all celebrate that, uh, and, and many responsible, um, including uh, the United States. Uh, it's just a victory for air power. I, I, I don't say that because I come from the Air War College. Uh, the U.S. Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps, Allied Air Forces, Jordan, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, uh, a lot of other uh, Arab countries flew missions against the so-called Islamic State, and they learn uh, those operations partly by attending our schools, and that's why as we graduate tomorrow, the class of, uh, of, of 2018, a lot of those officers are going to go back and, and benefit from the fact that they spent time together at places like the Air War College. Um, but the bad news is that the Assad regime has, uh, has, has entrenched itself. It's brought in the Russians. It's brought in the Iranians. And so I think what has happened is that while the Syrian civil war is winding down, uh, the seeds from the next conflict are very much there. Because again, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey are all very much concerned about the outcome. And, and, and I fear that what we saw this past week between Israel and Iran is just the beginning. Yes, and it seems to me Israel at first in regards to the Syrian civil war either said we'll let it go on or if the outcome we desire is sort of a partitioned Syria. Uh, but if you now have Assad still in power and it becomes essentially a base for Iran to mm -hmm. carry out operations, uh, that's, again, as you just put it, the seeds of a, a greater conflict. And uh, should the United States and should, uh, I guess, Israel in this equation and others, uh, and are we maybe looking at this situation as sort of a long Cold War between Iran and, say, Saudi Arabia and other Arabs in the area. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it, uh, and hopefully it stays cold. Mm. I think that what we saw last week, again, the Israelis are very concerned about Iranian presence. Uh, Iran fired shots. Israel has fired shots. Who fired first is sort of immaterial. Um, 
but Iran fired 20 rockets into Israel. The Israelis responded by hitting over 24 targets in uh, throughout Syria with, with long-range missiles and fighters. Devastating attack. Uh, I think both sides recognize that it's time to pull back. I remember uh, I was on the Dan Morris show, and Dan said, "What do you think is going to happen?" And I said, "I think it's going to I think it's going to quiet down." And I say that because I think both sides understand the danger of escalation. Um, if uh, Iran gets involved, if Hezbollah gets involved, and it's important to remember, Hezbollah is an important piece of this equation. Yes. Hezbollah is a Lebanese militia. They're Arabs. They're not Persian, but uh, they are a very effective fighting force in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon is right next door to Israel. It, it's right north of Israel in particular. And uh, Hezbollah, we think, has over 100,000 rockets that it could shoot into Israel. Um, that got really unpleasant in 2006. It could light off again. And I think every side realizes that the consequence of a conflagration is so great that hopefully they'll keep their powder dry and there may be a few shots here and there, but they'll all understand that escalation will bring catastrophe virtually to everybody. If the Israelis go through another 2006 conflict, it will be worse um, for the Israelis. They're also facing uprisings in Gaza to the south. Uh, the West Bank is still uh, unsettled. And so, in many ways, the Israeli situation remains precarious from really three different directions, from Gaza, from the West Bank, and certainly from Lebanon, where, again, Hezbollah has just increased its political power in the Lebanese government because the opposition force has actually lost seats. So, uh, I think everybody understands and uh, will respect the reality that uh, to shoot uh, in many ways could only uh, make things worse for, for all parties. Well, and there's this, it seems to me, tension throughout all these issues, and this is a big thing to drop on the table with five minutes left, but there seems to be this tension between what is your standard political and a geopolitical thinking and, you know, the competition between regimes and nations, and then also the rise of uh, religion playing a more dominant role in the political arena. I guess uh, Erdogan in Turkey expresses that very well. I mean, it, and, and, it, and it's mixed signals that these countries are have their own factions vying for power. So, like with Iran, the regime continues, I think, to want to express that uh, Shia version of Islam. I imagine Saudi Arabia does too, though they want the reforms. What is this interplay, as far as you can tell, between, say, the rise of religion that crosses borders and nations as opposed to sort of a nationalism and identity? You know, that it's it's growing tension between those who want more religion, mostly for political reasons, uh, and those who don't. Um, the interesting case is Iraq. Um, mm. Iraq um, had an election where uh, the interesting beneficiary was a guy named Musa al-Sadr, uh, who was both anti-Iranian and anti-American. Uh, but what he did was to form a coalition with other forces to include a small Christian force uh, and say, look, we need less religion. We need, uh, we need more Iraq. Um, and I'm willing to roll back the religious demands in exchange for stability. What that matches is the reality that in many Iranian, or, or, sorry, Iraqi cities, we're seeing much less religion, partly because the so-called Islamic State was so radical, so violent, so horrifying that many Iraqis said, if, 
that's the reach of Islam. We don't want it. And so you're seeing fewer headscarves, you're seeing more alcohol, not that that's a good sign of secularism necessarily, but uh, more people out at night, uh, more people going to restaurants, more people attending musical concerts. Uh, music has really grown in Iraq. Uh, there's a whole genre of, of, of Iraqi rock and roll. Um, and uh, again, it's in many ways, it's a pushing back on state religion. It is a pushing back on religion as an excuse to kill people. Um, and you're seeing the same thing in Saudi Arabia, again, with, with a pushback of the extreme forms of, of, of Sunni Islam in Saudi Arabia. Uh, on the other hand, the clerics use religion as a political device, and they're pushing to re-religiousize, if that's a word. If not, I just made it up. Um, <laughs> All words are made up. Yeah, well, we, you know, we, I guess we have a chance to contribute to vocabulary, how bad <laughs> it may be. Um, but there's a push between those who, who want more religion and those who want less religion. You see it in Iraq, you see it in Iran, you see it in Saudi Arabia, you see it in Jordan, uh, and you see it in Israel. I mean, the large majority of Israelis would just as soon not uh, see the ultra-Orthodox uh, uh, become more politically influential. They don't want to be told you can't drive on the Sabbath or go to movies on the Sabbath or the other things that secular Israelis like to do. So it's a conflict. and. I, I would say five years ago, the region seemed to be becoming much more religious. Now, I think you're seeing different directions. And mm. my sense is that there's a preference for personal freedom from state-imposed religion that seems to be building over state-imposed religion. And again, I'm not talking about religion as a matter of faith. I'm talking about religion as a mechanism to influence and in some cases certainly to control people uh, through through the faith. That's the clerics in, uh, in Iran try to do uh, and as has happened in Saudi Arabia for, for, for many decades. And I think we're seeing finally modernity, the role of social media, which is bringing in ideas of modernity outside the region. And I think you're seeing a real interest now in in uh, in modernity over re religiously imposed uh, uh, a political situation. Well, that gives me hope. And uh, I don't know, it informs me that as the United States makes policies, there does need to be some patience and some yes. prudence do no harm. And how ironic it would be that the uncorked, well, the cork itself that opened up the bottle of rack if it somehow strangely became a source of stability yeah. again. Yeah. That would be a wonderful thing. Well, Dr. Swartzen, we're out of time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having me. We covered a lot of ground. I guess it's not too bad for, you know, 40-something minutes of talking. <laughs> so, folks, thank you so much for listening tomorrow night. I have no clue what I'm doing, and I like it that way. So listen in. Talk to y'all then. My words go round and round.